Welcome back to My Awakening Podcast. All podcast episodes thus far have been recorded in person. This episode, number 18, is our first virtual podcast using Zoom, which I will be using more frequently in the future. I am in Arizona right now and excited that virtual recording opens up such great possibilities to have guests located anywhere to help educate us on many systemic racism issues. So, let's get started. Thank you for listening in to episode number 18 today. To continue bringing you insightful conversations about America's racial issues, this episode focuses on housing inequity. I am pleased to introduce you to Pam Duncan, CEO of Metropolitan Development Council in Tacoma, Washington. Pam will help us to better understand some of the housing inequity issues resulting from long-term systemic racism. Welcome, Pam. And thank you for being our guest today on My Awakening Podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, I'm glad that we finally have had the opportunity to connect and to have a conversation. And again, my name is Pam Pamela Duncan, and I am the CEO of Metropolitan Development Council. I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and moved here 19 years ago. Um, and so have, in the entire time that I've been here, I've worked in the uh, Tacoma Pierce County area, except for a brief stint at IKEA as a customer service rep. A lot of people don't know that about me. And the work that I lead with, um, this auspicious agency, we are founded as a community action agency with a charge to eradicate poverty. And this is a result of President Johnson's um, war on poverty and the establishment of the um, Economic Opportunities Act in 1964. So we are an um, part of that original cohort of organizations that really had a focus on being um, and being poverty eradicators. Hmm. And as I have uh, really observed in the two and a half years of my tenure at MDC, I have promoted that we cannot be focused on eradicating poverty without looking at the inter intersectionality of racism and social justice. And even if we go back and think about what was going on at the time that President Johnson felt compelled to address poverty, here's um, some simple um, information. The unemployment rate was just at 4%. It was very, very low. But the poverty rate was right under 20%. So almost five times um, what the unemployment rate was. And then when you begin to um, unpack who is being represented in that demographic of um, folks experiencing poverty, you see disproportionalities really come to life. The uh, community of Black folks was more than twice that 19% poverty rate um, ex who were experiencing poverty. And if you were to unpack it even more, you would see that if um, where there are um, single heads of households, there is an even uh, disproportionate, disproportionately greater amount of poverty being experienced. And at the same time, remember, this is the civil rights era, and there were um, uh, voices being lifted up about Jim 
against Jim Crow and against all of the um, the discrimination and disparities and racist behavior towards black during that blacks during that time. So all of these things are going on, and it made me realize there's no way you can just take poverty and address it and not consider the systemic impacts of racism and how that has impacted some folks more than others. Just curious if the Metropolitan Development Council is a uh, amongst a group of uh, organizations like yours all over the country or is, you know, are they, are they located in almost all metro areas? Great question. That's actually the truth. That's actually fact. MDC is part of 30 community action agencies that are under a state association umbrella, Washington State Community Action Partnership. And then we are part of a network of more than 1,000 community action agencies across the country. So almost every county in the country is served by a community action agency. Generally, we show up as nonprofits. There are uh, some instances where it operates also under a government entity, um, such as a county entity. And actually, we we have that perfect example here in Pierce County because we have both the 501c3 Metropolitan Development Council, and then we have a program that operates under Pierce County, which is the uh, Pierce County Community Action Program. And so they have a focus on several key areas in which they serve everyone beyond the city of Tacoma. We provide those same services solely to city of Tacoma residents. And then MDC beyond that has a countywide footprint. Okay. With all of the other services. So could we uh, back up just a bit on your personal uh, introduction? And I'd just like to know a little bit more about when you came to Tacoma, uh, were you, uh, did you come with family? Did you come, uh, by yourself? Or did you already have family in the area? Uh, you said you came from, was it Cleveland? Yes. <clears throat> yes. My family had already started migrating out to the Pacific Northwest. We actually all, all of us who are here came from Cleveland, Ohio. And so there's, we'll get into the story of how we even ended up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, but my brother had moved out here as a result of being in the Navy. He settled down here, um, started a series of businesses. And when my mom retired from the school board in Cleveland, she moved out to help him with his businesses. And I had visited, uh, the first time was in 92, my brother had tried to get me to come out and visit for a long time, and I just never had any interest in visiting the Pacific Northwest. And he worked on me for several years. I finally <laughs> came out and fell in love right when I arrived here, fell in love when I saw Mount Rainier. Um, um, I just knew that I would be, I would someday live, end up living here. And actually I want to honor the people who were here first and the name that they had, which is Mount Tahoma mm -hmm. and um, be, be more intentional about referring to that beautiful iconic landmark by its original name, Mount Tahoma. So, uh, but when I saw it, I just knew that one day I would live here. Um, and it was 10 years before I eventually did move here with my sons. Um, and I have never regretted moving here. Uh 
as I mentioned to you before we started, um, our second season of this podcast, we're uh, more focusing on um, better understanding various systemic racism issues. And you have agreed to speak as much as you're able today about this housing inequity that we are experiencing, I'm sure, all over the country and certainly in our region. And um, there's many facets to that, but I'd like to start off, uh, if you don't mind, by having you sort of share just generally when you hear the term housing inequity, what does that mean to you and how could you help our listeners to understand a little deeper uh, meaning of that? I think I'm going to approach this from <clears throat> my own lived experience. Growing up in Cleveland was a very segregated experience. Cleveland, um, unbeknownst to many folks, um, is part of what that chain around the Great Lakes that um, would be called the um, up south. There's down south and there's up south. And up huh. south huh. is um, um, has its own set of racist dynamics, um, specifically uh, more pronounced segregation with housing than you would see in the in the south. Um, and what I what I began to realize as I was growing up was that there had been waves of people who lived in the houses that were the houses and apartments that were occupied at the time of my observation by black people. I always grew up in black neighborhoods. What happened is as different populations moved into, migrated into the city, that current population would migrate further east. And so the houses and the apartments that we grew up in were, had been occupied primarily by the Jewish community. There's a huge Jewish community in Cleveland. Um, and they would, they would leave and exit um, because nobody wanted to live or have black people live around them. And a lot of this was, um, wasn't, it's, it's a combination as Richard Rothstein says in his book, The Color of Law, there's du jour and de facto. And there, so there's what was legislated as this is what neighborhoods and communities would look like. And here's what people would, would just authentically migrate towards um, having. But because black people weren't able to um, purchase homes and new developments, black people were not allowed to um, get bank loans to purchase houses for a very long time. And so we're familiar with the term redlining and that there's this part of a community that banks are not going to lend to, also will not lend to blacks to go on the other side of that red line. Um, and so when black people began um, migrating into northern urban communities, those here, so that's part of the inequity, but the other part is apartment buildings would be subdivided so many different ways that people would be packed onto one another um, and paying rents that were um, exorbitant and much greater than what someone went, um, a person who was not black was living in a unit. So just like per square foot, blacks were paying more for their rent. So that just the beginning of the housing inequity. And there's all of the ripple effects of being in a community that's densely populated impoverished, um, schools do not receive the same amount of funding as 
more as wealthier communities do, that you don't have access to the types of um, food, like fresh food um, that more affluent communities have. And then not even necessarily more affluent, but non-Black. So there are all of these ripple effects that come from a, an intentional decision to not allow Black people to purchase homes and new housing developments. And a lot of this came about as a result of um, post-World War, War II, where um, the government realized, oh, we need to build houses for um, returning vets but not if you're black, you don't get to purchase those homes. So that's just the beginning. I, uh, a couple of things that you mentioned here were new to me, <clears throat> new to me. Well, of course I've heard of redlining and understood basically what that was. You specifically added that it also meant that blacks who may want to purchase uh, outside of that red line were uh, prohibited from doing so by the lending institutions. Um, I had not heard that and I wasn't aware that it was a kind of a two-way deal. So that was the American banking system. And as a result of that, when that was um, uh, dismantled, that's where banks um, became required, they have CRA requirements, the Community Reinvestment Acts that are instilled on them by the feds as a result of the historic discrimination and of communities. You were asking which topic would I prefer to address? I think where what was coming to mind as you were speaking, Joe, I was being reminded of, even for me, some of the things that really were being illuminated about five, six years ago here in Tacoma and Pierce County. And this came about as a result of one of my um, very dear colleagues, uh, Carolyn Weiss, who is a professor at uh, UPS. She was on sabbatical and she was touring, traveling the country to find out who was doing work on the issue around um, the homelessness issue and the data that was uh, likely showing that there is a disproportionate impact on people of color. And as a result, she found out about an organization um, on the East Coast that was doing um, at the actual work she was wondering about and had set up five cohorts around the country to really explore the intersectionality of homelessness and race. And she asked if they would consider adding Tacoma and Pierce County as the sixth community of this cohort. And so those communities were Buffalo, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, Dallas, the Bay Area, and they included Tacoma and Pierce County. We were, at the time I was working with the city of Tacoma and we were asked to be, to really be the um, points of contact with this work. And it was how I became acquainted with um, an amazing human being by the name of Mark Domes. And Mark is doing this work, um, had been doing this work around the country, recently got hired at the city of Seattle to lead out their new homelessness office. Um, but here's the thing that was the eye opener for me. As we were preparing, basically putting in place the infrastructure to do the study locally and see what the data would tell us about homelessness um, and breaking it down around demographic lines, I began realizing so we're setting up an infrastructure so we can interview individuals, both those with the lived experience as well as those 
who provide services to the individuals we're talking about. And even that is a conversation of privilege. Even myself having this conversation and as I was listening to all of my peers and we were talking about here are things that people experience when seeking to serve those most in need and hearing. So we'll schedule an interview and they don't show up or they'll be late or we always have to follow behind them. And I thought that's really spoken from a a position of privilege because (laughs) we don't know how many buses people have to take to catch to get to us or what they are dealing with in their homes or anything, we are placing a judgment on those we are, um, we have the privilege to serve without understanding all everything that's going on in their lives. As a result of just that observation, we decided we needed to have an introductory community meeting to talk about the importance of this work and why it's so critical in the Pacific Northwest. Because the first thing people were, would be likely to say is, we don't have a race problem in the Pacific Northwest. We're liberals here. We're, we don't have, we don't discriminate. And I knew that there was nothing that could be further from the truth. It's just that it shows up in a different way. Okay. That was illuminating because at the Urban Grace Church, and I believe it was in 2015, we talked about the different ways that people had been very explicitly discriminated against in this community, the Puyallup people, the Chinese people, the, um, the, the black folks who had been redlined in um, their houses and what they could get a mortgage for and why a house on one side of division is valued at more than the house on the other side of division. And so these were eye-opening and it gets, I wanna get to all of this became illuminated because of the study that we did that resulted in a report called the SPARC report. And SPARC, S-P-A-R-C, stands for Supporting Partnerships for Anti-Racist Communities. And that report illuminated the issue of homelessness, the intersectionality of homelessness and race who experiences homelessness and what the long lasting impacts are for those who experience homelessness. So what that report illuminated is that white people have to, white people can be poor, but not fall as quickly into deep poverty. It takes a while. It takes a series of events for white people to fall into a place where they are really um, experiencing deep poverty. On the other hand, that black folks and brown folks can have, it can be one event. It can be that one bump in the road and the whole car falls apart because the whole car to begin from the beginning was not put together well. If I could use that kind of analogy. Um, There's all of these things that um, are tenuous, far more tenuous for black and brown people than they are for white people that can put blacks over the edge and then be in a um, situation that's hard, that lands them in homelessness. So can I give you an example? Surely. Uh, One of the uh, examples in that report talks about a a young family that um, economic reasons ended up going to live with the, um, the woman's grandmother who owned her home. And they moved in with her and but they weren't employed, 
the grandmother was on a fixed income and all of the um, additional stressors on that house, like additional utility use and everything um, resulted in um, escalated utility bills that no one was able to pay, um, utilities being turned off in, um, and not being able to heat the home. And ultimately the grandmother lost the house, I believe because of a failure to pay the property taxes and everybody became homeless. And that is not a unique story um, because the capital that people of color tend to have is not a cash capital. It's the social capital of the family and friends network that just puts additional burdens. Um, and so these are the things that end up um, with people heading down the road, becoming homeless, and then um, struggling to get out of that place of homelessness. So you're describing a uh, differential in economic stability that exists in general between, uh, mm -hmm. I suppose, folks that are in the lower income uh, category, whether they be whites or blacks or brown people, um, there's some similarities, but you're stating that from the study that apparently uh, blacks are more easily uh, tipped over into a more serious um, economic situation that puts them at risk in terms of housing and lots of other things, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but it, I, I, I guess I'm not surprised at that when I think about the um, issues regarding um, average uh, incomes and the net worth numbers that I've seen between mm -hmm. blacks and whites and all these things. I mean, it's there's a lot of factors there that are fairly readily available that you can look at that it wouldn't be surprising to hear that there's a, a group of folks that are much closer to the edge there. And what what really strikes me is, you know, has gotten my attention and I'm sure lots of other people, but not to the point of my rolling up my sleeves necessarily and diving into a particular area, but the whole homeless, homelessness issue in our area. So I'm, I'm 73. I grew up in Tacoma. Um, I, lived in a white bubble pretty much most of my life, uh, as I suspect most white people do. And uh, I grew up in Fircrest. It was a, a town of about 1,500 when I moved there in 1956. And, um, and I went to uh, grade school in that community and then Hunt Junior High School and graduated from Wilson in 66. And my whole life, I've never seen anything like what we're physically seeing. And I got to believe that what we're seeing is not the whole picture by any means, but what we're seeing on the streets with people living in tents and these sort of things that was most obvious in Seattle several years ago, and has certainly become really obvious in our own community. Now I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, shocked, I guess, and, and concerned about, what is that saying that's going on now that's different than it was 20 years ago? Was that all just hidden and we couldn't see it? Or is there way more homelessness in general now? Or is it the willingness of uh, our um, cities and stuff to allow this sort of living arrangement that we didn't allow before? I, I don't understand why it's how it's become so obvious and what is causing that. Uh, level of homelessness that we're seeing on the streets. Can you comment on that? Mm -hmm. So that's, I am going to speak in generalities um, and not uh, focus right now on uh, the disparities. The, so the homelessness that you see 
it's the tip of the iceberg yeah. to the entire uh, issue of folks who are housing unstable, unstable. Mm -hmm. And by that, so actually, I don't even want to refer to that because that's implying that there are folks who are still in their houses, but it, there, it's, there's an instability there. But the folks who are experiencing, who have been displaced, what you see on the streets is just the tip of the iceberg. Those are the folks who are literally unsheltered out there in your face. But then there are folks who are in their cars who you will not see. They could be right in plain sight and you will not see them. And there are the folks who are couch surfing. So they are staying with friends and relatives. They're doubled and tripled up. You will not see families with children out on the streets like you see individuals, men, women, and couples, because people try to do their best to keep their children hidden um, because they don't want to have their children taken away from them. And it's just not safe, right? So that's that's that situation. What you see is not the totality of it, is basically what I'm saying. And then we, we have these waves of events. So we have the Great Recession. Let's just talk about this century. We had the Great Recession that happened in 2008-2009. At that time, I was working with United Way of Pierce County and part of my portfolio was emergency services. And I had just been tracking the um, steadily increasing number of folks who were in crisis, who, who needed food, who needed rental assistance, who needed utility assistance. And that was from the time I started in 2002. And so I'm seeing things, nothing is going down, everything is going up. And I knew that with what we were seeing with the economy, even before it was pronounced, as, an, as a recession, I knew that there was going to be this long-term impact on people. We already had a serious issue with homelessness in our communities. And I knew that once this wave, this tidal wave of the recession and its impacts with people being laid off, losing their jobs, eventually losing their housing, that we were going to have those current folks just really seep down into the sediment and be replaced by a new wave of folks who were becoming homeless. And that is what has happened. And so we, we are seeing folks who from post-recession got displaced on top of the folks who were already displaced and we're, we're going to see it again um, if we don't get in front of the impacts of the ending of the eviction moratorium. That's another day to talk about that. But yeah. what I want <laughs> to say, Joe, is that um, it has always been here and it's been here and more prevalent to me as a transplant, I saw it right away. I had not seen that in Ohio, like I've seen it here. And in part it's because we're on the side of the continent where the, the weather is more temperate. So you don't, with the exception of a few nights in the winter, you're not going to die being outside overnight. In the Midwest, it's a different story. So there's a different approach to homelessness. I'll stop so you can. So is the homelessness we're seeing, then thank you for, uh, I guess it's fair to uh, recognize from your comments there that this is a, a long, uh, a long occurring phenomenon that the, the, the homelessness we're actually seeing on our streets 
in our community, Seattle and so forth. I don't know if that's a widespread thing all over the country, but I know that it's in more places than just our communities. Um, that is a, a long occurring uh, situation that maybe didn't even start with the, uh, the Great Recession, as you say, in 08. Uh, it probably preceded that maybe somewhat as well, but that exacerbated it. And then obviously our current situation with the pandemic, I suppose, and all is further exacerbation and waiting in the wings, this whole um, uh, moratorium on evictions is, is a rather sizable dark cloud, I suppose, waiting in the wings here. And so um, I, I guess I still struggle with, uh, well, my white, my white privilege, I think, uh, causes me to struggle in different ways than maybe uh, yours in the sense that you, you've been aware of and paying attention to these things. And for me, I guess it's, I've, I've only more recently been paying more attention and probably in the last several years and um, uh, want to be part of the solution as best I can. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I uh, have been going to the uh, community quarterly meetings that uh, Associated Ministry is doing about homelessness and stuff and found some interesting thoughts there and ways to connect with uh, uh, assisting the homelessness issue in our area. But um, I wanted to also say that your work, I assume, uh, you didn't specifically indicate this, but your work at Metropolitan Development Council, a great deal of that work is connected with uh, housing inequity. Uh, can you describe the work specifically that you do at your agency that actually uh, addresses some of these issues? Uh, I, I think I heard you say before when you and I talked that it was a really big portion of the work that you do regarding housing. Mm -hmm. So could you share about that yep. a bit? Yep. And first, I will say, I believe housing is a basic human right. And that if we were as community to um, embrace, fully embrace that philosophy that housing is a basic human right, then I think we would be as a community operating differently and we would not see the proliferation of homelessness as we are seeing it. Metropolitan Development Council, part of its focus is housing and supportive care management. And so we are a property owner. We have apartment complexes, duplexes, and single family homes that are established as affordable housing. And in many cases, it's permanent supported housing because we understand that there are individuals in order to be able to live in their unit, they need, um, they require supports, ongoing supports. It could be behavioral health supports. It could be supports in terms of um, ensuring that they are taking care of their unit and it's not becoming um, um, the, a risk for units around it, that they are making certain that they are um, cleaning up and whatever. I'm not by any means implying or um, associating that behavior with um, homelessness um, or that homeless folks are, um, are not clean. I wanna be sure that I, I'm not making that association. I'm saying that there are individuals and likely because of a behavioral health diagnosis need supports that ensure that they can be in a safe and clean environment. We also um, <clears throat> provide, um, so the, the continuum of the services that we provide for the folks um, 
for who are our um, tenants ranges on a continuum from they don't need anything, they just need it, you know, this is a household that needed a place to live, all the way to very intense supported care uh, to ensure that they can remain in that unit, they can remain safely housed in their unit. So we are a housing provider and we are a provider of the supportive care that folks, some folks need. Okay. And approximately how many family units are you supporting in the housing that, that MDC owns? With what MDC owns, we have about 150 units that we own. So, and the reason I'm being very careful to make that distinction is because we also hold master leases and other properties um, that may be owned by a different individual or corporation. Okay. And we um, lease, we, we lease to those folks who are our clients. So that might be an additional 200 units. Okay. All right. And um, so your day-to-day -day work at MDC then puts you, I would think, in direct contact then with um, folks that are have various housing issues that you help them deal with. And uh, is the is homelessness when they when they come to you or when you engage with uh, clients, I guess I don't know what you what your general term is, but uh, when you engage with clients of MDC, are they um, close to homelessness when you engage with them, or are you usually able to engage uh, early enough to where you can stave off a uh, a homelessness situation? Actually, many are in their status is homeless. Okay. Um, many folks we serve are referred to us through the uh, coordinated entry system. Mm -hmm. And because of um, whatever the series of dynamics are they are experiencing, they rise to the top and they have the, they're identified as having the greatest need and that's who we work with. So do they go on a waiting list? Mm -hmm. Assuming there that is your a, housing is all full, right? Uh, there, there are some vacancies and we are always seeking to acquire a master lease so that we can acquire more units to provide the housing. And generally, uh, properties, property owners are willing to do that because they know that we will provide the supportive services that those tenants need as well. So we, we do have, um, there is always some um, turnover um, and vacancies. So we are under an, an eviction moratorium. Property owners, landlords may not evict except for a, um, a very extenuating circumstance, but there is still, people are still moving. And so there's still turnover. Right. This is a specific question for you uh, that uh, one of our listeners uh, sent in to me here. And I think it'll play on the audio. So let me see if this works here. Hello, my name is Betty. I'm from Lakewood, Washington. And my question is about what is being done or how can ex-offenders get decent, affordable housing without any penalties, especially in the application process? So I don't know if that falls in your wheelhouse specifically or not, but thought I would pose it anyway. It's a very valid question. It is not completely went within my wheelhouse. Um, there is, I am aware that there is ex-offender housing. Um, MDC looks at the applicants on a case-by-case -case basis. 
And depending on the, um, the, the crime that um, the individual was convicted on, the organization will make a decision about is this a, um, an individual who can be housed um, um, a, with other, with the larger community. So uh, there's a different response to someone who perhaps had a, um, I'm just gonna say a burglary conviction as opposed to someone who um, has um, a, a sex offense on their record. And so I am not the expert, the subject matter expert on that. Um, there are folks in the community who um, focus um, specifically on people who are um, returning to um, the community from being incarcerated, who could speak to that much better than I could. Could you possibly uh, uh, suggest a or refer a particular agency or person that uh, uh, Betty might uh, make contact with? I will find out and get back to you, Joe, because okay. I don't have information readily available. Okay, that would be great because I have her contact information and I can forward that on to her. So thank you for that. So uh, one of the additional aspects of this new tool for allowing listeners to engage directly with us, again, this is just the very start. So that's the very first one I've actually received. And what I'm hoping to do is after this podcast, I will be promoting the idea of listeners um, providing questions specifically about the issues that you and I have spoken about today, uh, housing inequity, and maybe posing specific questions about that. Uh, and then maybe we can do a, a follow-up um, that would just be specifically focused on answering questions or dealing with specific issues that some of the listeners may additionally have that I was unable to uh, present to you today. So if you're open to that, that's something that also could be uh, scheduled down the road. I'm hoping to create a much more engaged platform here through this process. So we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to do that. When you talk about an it shows up everywhere. That's why there is um, a, um, a wealth gap between white households and non-white households because the fastest way to acquire wealth is through home ownership. And white people have had a long head start on um, that acquisition of wealth because of the... Um, the intentional um, institutionalized uh, way of keeping some people out of that arena. When we started this conversation, it was about, Pam, talk about inequities. And we, um, we had a good conversation that kind of meandered and we, um, really be also began talking about just the widespread homelessness. And I, I think where I want to land is um, reiterating that housing is a basic human right. Um, that it's not only a fundamental need but it is also a right to which everyone is entitled. And because I, I believe that, again, if we would embrace that as the driver, we wouldn't, we, we could, we would just have a, um, an approach from the heart that would uh, result in people not living on the streets and the rest of us being okay about it. So that's really where I want to, to land. Well, Pam, I wanna thank you very much for uh, joining this 
uh, episode of My Awakening Podcast and spending your time with us this morning. So I look forward to talking with you again in the future and have a great day. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Joe. Have a great day too. Thanks to Pam Duncan for sharing some important initial thoughts regarding housing inequity. This was a brief overview on a broad topic that we hope to explore further in future episodes. The SPARK report that Pam referred to is available in our new housing inequity section at myawakeningpodcast.com. If you would consider helping with housing inequity issues in your community, I can suggest three agencies in Tacoma as opportunities for volunteering or providing financial assistance. These nonprofit agencies are Metropolitan Development Council, Associated Ministries, and Shared Housing, and you will find the web links for them on our website, also in our Housing and Equity section. I would like to thank Betty as well for recording our very first listener input in posing a question for Pam. Would you please record any further questions about housing inequity you may consider after listening to this episode? I want to encourage more listeners to use this new self-recording feature to ask questions, suggest future episodes, content, or make other comments. Remember that working together, we can move much closer to making liberty and justice for all a reality for all Americans. Thank you again for listening to My Awakening Podcast. Come on and tell me something. Just get it off your chest.